0: Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good
1: morning. Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the israelites again so joshua made flint knives and circumcised the israelites at gibbeth and her gibbeth now this is why he did so all those who came out of egypt all the men of military age died in the wilderness on the way after leaving egypt all the people that came out had been circumcised but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them, to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey so he raised up their sons in their place and these were the ones joshua circumcised they were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way and after the whole nation had been circumcised they remained where they were in camp until they were healed then the lord said to joshua today i have rolled away the reproach of egypt from you so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped camped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after. They ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground and reverence and asked him. What message does my Lord have for this servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for this place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so.
0: Being a Christian is the greatest life you could ever have. Full of peace, unshakable, abounding joy, assuring love, and that shapes you into, as the Bible says, a person who becomes kind and gentle, a person with principles and faithfulness, a person who is fierce and loyal. It shapes you into that kind of person. And God wants to lead us as his people into the life that he has promised to give us. It's exactly why we're in this story today in Joshua chapter 5. God is ready to bring his people into the land that he promised to. Centuries before to Abraham, and now it's time. It's been a long time coming for these people. This promise was given to Abraham, it survived Isaac, it survived that Jacob and Esau mess, it survived going down uh, Joseph being sold, it survived going down to Egypt, it survived slavery, it survived the wilderness. This promise now, in this moment, they've crossed the Jordan, they're ready to take over in the promised land. This is a powerful moment. And they have all the momentum in the world that they would ever need to finish this deal. To take over the promised land. You notice when Lawrence was reading in chapter 5 verse 1, it says that all the kings in that area, when they heard about the stopping of the water at the Jordan, they crossed over the people of God, Israel. Their hearts melted. They were scared to death. They had all the momentum. They had the power of God on their side. They had a faith-filled leader in Joshua who was a mighty, great warrior. They had obedient soldiers who were men who were ready to follow wherever Joshua led them. And their enemies were on the ropes and scared to death. And it seems like the perfect time when they come over the Jordan to seize the moment and move into the promised land, the life that God had promised them. But for some strange reason, in chapter 5, God presses the pause button and has them stop in enemy territory. It seems like the time to strike, but God says, we got to wait a minute. God's got to take care of something that's not external, like raising up warriors or setting the enemy on the edge or having them ready to take over. It's not an external thing that God has to prepare so that they can have the life that he wants them to have. It's not external, it's internal. There's something wrong with Israel that they don't even know is wrong that God has to get right in them for them to move into the promised land now that's the point of the story today for us that you and I can have all the faith in the world we can have the excitement and energy we can believe the promises of what's in front of us that God has said through Jesus Christ I've come that you would have an abundant life full of joy, full of peace, assured in love all those things You can have faith. You can have excitement. You can even have a community of believers surrounding you, encouraging you. But there's something God has to get right on the inside of us before we ever are able to move into the promised land. Let's start with what the problem is. Number one, what's the roadblock? Look in verse 9. So you notice in that story, God has them at this place crossing the Jordan miraculously they're ready to conquer the promised land once and for all it's finally come and he says in verse 9 he tells Joshua I want you to circumcise the nation of Israel those that were born after coming out of Egypt for some reason they didn't uh, practice circumcision there's a lot of speculation why I won't get into that it really doesn't matter all that matters is that Israel was not circumcised when they crossed the Jordan River and God says you need to circumcise them And why what was the problem what was he doing if you look down in verse 9 he tells you exactly he says in verse 9 today because of circumcision I have rolled back the reproach of Egypt the reproach of Egypt all these years later it's been 40 years think how long 40 years is it's been 40 years since they have been in Egypt In fact, many of these people, they didn't live in Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness, and a generation was raised up. So there was all these years later, all these miles later, Egypt is still affecting Israel. And God says, I've got to remove the reproach of Egypt before you ever can move into the promised land. And God calls this problem, this roadblock, this issue that he's got to remove, reproach. Well, what is reproach? We don't use that word too often, but we live it. We experience it a lot. The word reproach is just a word that means shame and disgrace. It's that sense of embarrassment that drags you down. Reproach is a word that you would use to describe an enemy mocking its other enemies, looking at them and scorning and mocking them, ridiculing them, you know, you know tearing people down. That's what reproach is. Reproach is the lingering effect of our past that keeps us from moving into our future. Reproach is what defines us, and then it denies us moving into the life that God wants us to live. And so where does this reproach that we as humans carry come from? And here he says the nation of Israel carried the reproach of Egypt. The reproach that came from Egypt. And there's two important ways you got to see how this works for us and for them and why it mattered. First of all, Israel was in Egypt at a period of time. So there was a sense in which Israel had reproach because they were in Egypt. There was a time that Israel came down to Egypt. They lived there. They participated in life there. They enjoyed living in Egypt. And then rose up a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And all of a sudden... Israel became slaves and what you see in scripture from really the Exodus story forward is that Egypt is, a, is like parabolic language to us for sin that's really what it is and so for a period of time Israel was in Egypt that they went there, they lived in it they enjoyed it, they became part of the life and then they became slaves and that's exactly how sin that we commit works in our life we move into it, test it try it, practice it enjoy it indulge in it and then we become slaves to it Hebrews 12 verse 1 tells us that we need to in running the race of faith lay aside the sin singularly that so easily ensnares us sin is constantly described in the Bible as not just this inanimate object or this dabbling of uh, indulgent pleasure that you're not supposed to do sin is described as active and alive living In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, God describes it like a lion ready to pounce on you. It's described like a master and you its slave. Sin controls us, owns us, defines us, and stops us from moving into the life that God wants us to live. The sin we commit, just like Israel went to Egypt. But there's also a second element to this reproach. It wasn't just Israel that went down to participate in Egypt. Egypt was also in Israel. They had gotten into their heads. It wasn't just the sin they committed. It was the sin that was committed against them. You see, they were treated terribly for a period of time in Egypt. They suffered. They were mocked and scorned and beaten. Egypt was awful to Israel for a long time. And it was undeserved. And there are many people who carry reproach, shame, guilt, Embarrassment, Not just for sins they commit, but for sins that are committed against them. And this is what happened to Israel. They were bearing the reproach of Egypt because Egypt had defined them. And so many people carry this reproach of what's been done to them. Maybe they've existed in an abusive relationship where they think that's what they deserve. Or they've been... Uh, experience racism and think that's what they deserve or sexual abuse or divorced or poor parents or they're defined by their disability or something like that and they get these marks of this reproach that comes upon them because of sin not that they've done but that's been done to them and here's what happens whether you dabble in sin or sin is done to you sin blinds you to the point where you can't leave do you remember Israel's main complaint in the 40 years they were in the wilderness? They were blinded. Do you remember what their complaint was? Over and over and over, they said to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Life was better in Egypt. No, it wasn't. Life was terrible in Egypt. They were crying and crying out to God saying, please send us somebody, help us to leave. And the moment they leave, they look back and say, I don't know, man, I wouldn't mind going back. That's what sin does to you. It makes you look back and say, I want to go back there. Sin doesn't just describe what we've done. It defines who we are. And some of us need to see our Egypt for what it is. Something you need to leave. Whether it's sin you commit, or a definition or a sin that's been done to you. If it's sin you commit, praise God that he's rescued you. It's time to stop going back. It's over if it's sin that's been committed against you, that sin in Jesus Christ has no more power over you if you're in Jesus Christ. The future is yours because God has promised it, and you and I need to have faith to move forward into that. So how does God get rid of this reproach for Israel, and how does he get rid of it for us? How does does he want Israel to move forward to get rid of this reproach that came from Egypt? Well, for Israel, God had Joshua circumcise them why is that if you go back and look at the origins of circumcision in genesis chapter 17 if god comes to abram at the time and says he's going to circumcise him or he wants him to be circumcised pardon me first of all as a sign of a covenant an agreement circumcision is what defined god as abraham's god and abraham as belonging to, to god himself In Genesis 17, circumcision was the moment that Abraham had a sign that he was, Jehovah was, Abraham's God. It was a reminder that God would be with Abraham. Yes, in circumcision we align ourselves with God, but what God is trying to scream to Abraham and to us is that he is telling you, don't ever forget, I'm with you. I'm on your side. You're mine. So God had Joshua circumcise them to renew the covenant to remind Israel that God is with them. Secondly, he needed to replace their identity. Back in Genesis 17, when God brought circumcision to Abram, it was in that moment he said, you're no longer going to be called Abram, but I'm going to call you Abraham. He gave him a new name, a new identity. You see, up until this point, Egypt had defined Israel. Their whole existence, their whole psyche, their whole ethos was revolving around Egypt. Egypt told them who they were. It's not that they had just been in slavery. It's not just that they were wandering in the wilderness. It's that they were slaves and they were wanderers. Do you see the difference? It's not just the things they did. It's who they were. It's how they were defined. And as I said, sin doesn't just describe what you do. It ends up defining who you are. That's what a curse is. You've heard the word curse probably used in the Bible before and some people have probably used it. The word curse literally just means this. To define someone by their worst moment. Okay? To curse somebody is to define them. To say that's who you are based upon their worst moment. That's why James tells us that we ought not to bless God and curse others with our same mouth. We shouldn't do that. You see... This idea of cursing where we define someone by the worst moments. Some of you are letting other people curse you, meaning that you are being defined by your worst characteristics, your worst moments, and it's holding on to you, and you can't let it go. Some of you are letting people curse you, and even worse, some of you in here are cursing yourselves. You're speaking constantly over and over to yourself, shaping your identity based upon what's worst about you, not in light of who God is. You see, when God circumcised Abraham, he said, your name is now this. When he circumcised Israel, he said, you're not slave of Egypt, you're servants of mine. In circumcision, God was defining not just the covenant that he would be with them, but he was defining their identity. I am your God and that's who you are. So what do we do? So we're starting a circumcision ministry. No, I'm just kidding, we're not doing that. (laughs) But there's something like it. In Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul says that you're not a Jew just outwardly, a person of God just outwardly. It's something inward. And circumcision is not just done with hands. Circumcision is of the heart. And if you look in Colossians chapter 2, he explains that circumcision. Let me read this for you. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, he says this, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him, who is the head of all and the rule, of, uh, rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised. In Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, Verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's what happens when you come to Jesus Christ by faith. And you say, I trust his life, his work, more than my own. I believe in him. I confess him. I confess my sin. I'm turning to God. And you are baptized into Jesus Christ. You go down into the water. And that man, that old person of sin, dies in that water. And when you are raised, he says, you're raised to walk in the newness of life. That is circumcision. The cutting away from the heart that old person so that you could be born again and live new. Now watch. He says, you've got to then remove that reproach of that old person. So when we are circumcised through our baptism, we have a covenant of, with God renewed. We know that we are His and He is ours. Roman 8 says this, that if God would not even hold back His own Son for us, who in the world then can separate you from God's love? Nobody. Who in the world can separate you from God's power? Nobody. You are His and He is yours. That's what circumcision and through baptism tells us. The second thing is this, that you now have a new identity in Jesus Christ. You are no longer defined by what you do or even who you think you are or even what's been done to you. You are now defined solely in Jesus Christ by who loves you. Now, this is a radically different way of defining our identity than anything the world will tell you. The world tells you that you need to shape produce grow or absorb some sort of identity that it's about what you accomplish or what you do or what you've done in your life and so sometimes you can't shake that identity because of mistakes you've made or sometimes you we get arrogant and prideful because of success we've had and we build our identity upon upon what we do or what we accomplish and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad and sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're not and here's what god does for us in jesus christ He says, I define you not by what you do or even who you love, but who loves you. John the Apostle became a dynamic force of the church in the first century. Do you know how John thought of himself? How did he describe himself? What was his calling card in the Gospel of John? One phrase. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the only way John saw himself. Elder, pastor in the church, preacher, teacher evangelist, apostle, all of these things that John was. He says, I am the disciple who Jesus loves. That's it. And here's a point you got to see back all the way in the story in Joshua. In chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, that after he circumcised them, they waited until they were healed. They paused. And some of you may be wanting to press into that life that God has for you, and there may be some moments here where you need to pause, renewing in the covenant, and having a new identity, and make sure you're healing in that. You got to start filling yourself with good things, filling your time with the right things. Look what they started to do. So they had a roadblock, which was this reproach of Egypt. God rolled it away through circumcision, like He does with us in baptism, to get rid of sin. But now you got to start practicing some rituals. Some act- rituals aren't a bad thing if they're good. And that's what they start doing. Immediately, the people of Israel start practicing a new way of life. It says, first of all, they celebrated the Passover. They were reminding themselves of God's salvation, God's power, God's goodness, God's mercy. And you and I must make a habit in our life of regularly remembering the goodness and faithfulness of God. That's what they were doing. Secondly, do you notice that something strange? They ate new food. First time in 40 years. They walk into this land that they had not cultivated, that they had not sown seed, that they had not harvested. And there is an abundance of food, a land flowing, as the Bible says, with milk and honey. And they eat this new food. And the moment they eat this new food that they did not work for, which is grace, do you notice it says the next day, the manna stopped. They never ate manna again. You see, manna is a good thing. It was useful for their survival, but it was not a delicacy. It's not something they indulged in. They loved. It wasn't something that just elicited all the emotion of joy and gratitude. Manna kept them alive, but there was a lacking of depth in it. And God wanted to give them more, and the same is true for us. Some of us are just eating manna all the time and not the new food. Let me explain what I mean. Here's what manna is. Manna is survival food. So something like, you may say this, this is manna, the the truth that we eat on. Manna says, God hates sin. Man, I'm such a sinner. I just hope I don't die while I'm in sin. There's a little bit of truth in there, right? And that just kind of keeps you going and keeps you going. Or manna says something like this. You know, there's probably a heaven after this life. I better be religious enough to make sure, you know, just cover my bases. That, that, that's enough to make you like you know keep coming back to church and doing a few religious things that's manna but the new food is this that he wants you to eat that you are completely accepted and fully loved and filled with eternal purpose that in spite of the fact that you are utterly sinful because of the mercy justice goodness and grace of God through Jesus Christ I can now be new who else in the world should I trust do you see the difference in those two foods he wants us to eat the new food, not just survival on manna. Now this story has a really interesting ending and will all be done. If you notice, Joshua knows that the next step for them to have the life that God has promised, this promised land, Jericho is in their way. That's the next thing they've got to take down. And so Joshua goes out and he's walking around Jericho looking at it. He's probably praying, God, what do you want us to do? strategizing a little bit let's go at this angle maybe look at this weakness he's thinking about it he's a good faithful warrior he knows they're going to win but he's checking things out and as he's doing that as he's praying and thinking God shows up like a warrior his sword is drawn and he's standing before Joshua and Joshua comes up to him and he asks him a really smart question. This mighty warrior who's got his sword drawn, and he knows we got to go beat Jericho if we're gonna have the promised land. And Joshua asks him a really smart question. He goes, Hey man, uh, you on our side or are you on their side? Are you with us or are you with the enemy? Did you hear the answer? He said, Neither. Neither. He said, I am the commander of the Lord's army. What he was saying to Joshua was, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm really asking you, are you on my side? Because I, as God's warrior, am going to defeat Jericho. The question is, are you coming with me? You see, here's the deal. Jesus Christ has promised that in him you will have fullness of joy, fullness of peace, abundant life, good, faithful life. He knows that he's got to defeat some enemies along the way to conquer that land so you can live in it. And so often we look to the heavens and say, are you going to help or not help? And he's saying, I'm going this way. I'm having victory. I'm wondering, are you with me? Do you trust me? And Joshua does what any person should do in the presence of God. He falls down and he worships and he submits to this being. He says, tell me what to do. This good, faithful warrior is wanting information from him. He's saying, listen, I trust you. Tell me how to win, how to beat Jericho. And all he says to him is this. Take your shoes off. You're in the presence of God. The only thing God wants him to do in that moment is recognize the greatness of God. That's where it all starts. Sure, Joshua's going to lead the people. They're going to move their bodies. They're going to fight. In fact, in Jericho, they're going to march around the city, right? They're going to conquer some places. But they will not do that before their reproach is removed and they recognize that they're in the presence of an awesome God, that he will lead them to victory. So here's the point for you. You can be that confident as well that you will become exactly who God has created you to be, that you can rid yourself of that reproach, that you can become the very person God wants you to be if you'll let him remove your reproach, get out of Egypt, get rid of the sin, and follow with fullness of faith. In Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul said this. He goes, He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. It reminds me how Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, when he told us to be perfect as his Father in heaven is perfect. And this bothers some people when they hear that because what they hear Jesus saying is, when you get perfect, then Jesus will show up. Or when you get perfect, then God will help you. And that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is the only help I do give is making you perfect. Now you might want something else, something less, something different. And God says, I won't help you in those things. What I will help you do is become perfect. And that's where I'm going. And are you going with me? Will you trust and will you follow? We're going to sing this song with Kevin right now. If you need to follow Jesus into that victory for your life, we're here. Let's stand and sing.